Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week, I'm speaking with Thomas Owen Baker, a criminology PhD student at the University of Missouri St. Louis, about his research on policing. Thomas is himself a former law enforcement officer and member of the United States military. Thomas is also the host and producer of his own podcast, Discipline and Punished, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. This is episode 41 of Untenured Tracks. I think people will be really surprised about that too, right? Like, um, I know when I when I bring it up in my classes, my students are really surprised. Even just the the number of deaths, um, and that uh, there are departments that kind of juke the the stats, um, intentionally removing those deaths from their their numbers to make it seem lower and to kind of cover stuff up. Um, students are really, I think, people in general are really shocked by that. Yeah, and, and people have this. People think of the police, you think, well, they're highly organized. You think, well, we've got the federal government, you know, you've got rules and regulations, and the Supreme Court says how things will be done, and that would trickle down to some sort of uniform policing methodology that's evenly distributed across the United States. That's couldn't be anything further from the truth. Yeah. Uh, like I, when I moved from, uh, like I did my policing in Arizona, I was a police officer for about nine years in Arizona before an academic. And my, I thought there were problems in saw a lot of weak, weak points and things that needed to definitely be improved. And then coming to St. Louis and having an opportunity to observe policing in St. Louis, I see, I can see that there are a whole other set of problems that exist in other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. That didn't exist. There's so much variability. Um, there, there, are, you know, there are problems everywhere. Um, so. So we, we don't really know how many people are killed by, by the police. And people use different definitions, uh, and they operationalize things in different ways. Mm-hmm. So, for example, like there are several databases. So you have like the FBI tries to keep track in some ways. There are um, uh, each agency will try to keep track of their their own data. Different new, uh, news agencies like the Washington Post and the Guardian they keep their own databases. There are private 
uh, efforts, nonprofit efforts, uh, creating their own databases. But in, in one database, like the database that I prefer to work with, it um, encounters database. They collect uh, all police-related deaths. Mm-hmm. So that would be someone gets shot by the police and they die. Somebody is fleeing from a traffic stop, crash and kill uh, a citizen. Um, that would be a police-related death. So there's a domestic violence incident and someone barricades himself inside of a house and they commit suicide. That would also be a police-related death. And I think it's important to examine all of these police-related deaths because the police play a role in determining the outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they're, not always, they're not the only act. They don't have sole authority and they can't control what happens all the time. But like the one... One case I would, example I would give is the 18 year old kid who leaves the traffic stop for rolling a stoplight, and the police, the police decide to chase them, and they crash. That's something that's unnecessary. It's not, it's not appropriate. It's not a best practice. So I think it's important to to use as as broad a data set as possible. Yeah. As as possible. So the project I'm working on now is, is with that with that data set. And what I found was there was no real there have been some attempts, but nobody had really sat down and said, you know, what are the sort of precursors to um related deaths? Like I asked three I asked three questions, you know, like what type of incident were police responding to leading mm-hmm. up to that? So I, I tried to like well, let me talk a little bit about the data set that I Okay. Okay, so, so just to backtrack, I got an entire year of usually death in the state on Canada's data. So, like, the Washington Post says, and the Guardian each will say there's about a thousand uh, people are shot and killed by the police every year. And with the fatal encounters database, that's bumped up to about 17 to 1800 per year. So, we're looking at, you know, seven or 800 additional deaths that you're examining. So, it's a much larger data set. Mm-hmm. What I did, I got the entire year for 2017, mm-hmm. and I went through each of these incidents, 1,759 of them, oh, wow. and tried, yeah, it took a little while, it took almost a year. Um, I went through each of them and tried to identify uh, independent accounts, so newspaper reports online, um, or mainly, mainly newspaper reports, but I would also, if I, if I located some type of governmental report, so the state did a review of the officer involved shooting months mm-hmm. afterwards, uh, some type of different independent accounts of an incident, and then try and then and ask three questions when I when I coded each incident, and that was you know what type of an incident would a reasonable officer have thought they were responding to when they became involved in the incident? So I wanted to make it actionable. So I wanted to, I, my, I was thinking, you know, if I was a police officer, I'm, you know, former police officer, if I was a police officer, or if I was a supervisor, and we were responding to, like, a front line sergeant, one of managing four, five, four nights, and we were responding to a call, I would want to know, like, what type of initial call for services are associated with these type of deaths. Right. So that I can, you know, take precautions if I know... X type of call is associated with an increased likelihood of a civilian death, then you know, I may want to take more time, not make contact right away, get more officers, you know, maintain more distance. Um, so that was the first question. You know, what type of call are they going? Mm-hmm. 
The second one was um, how did it come to the attention of law enforcement? Mm-hmm. Was it someone called the police? Was it um, the officers driving down the street and they caused a person or a traffic violation? So that was the second question. And then the third question is what, what was the assignment of the police officer? Patrol officer, detective, SWAT operator, you know, what, what, where were they operating? Right. Um, so I went through and I examined all, all of these incidents and uh, went through the data and, and I found what I'm finding is is that there's a, a real, a very high association between the level of violence in the initial call for service and um, the probability that a person, a likelihood of a person is going to, a civilian is going to die in relation to this incident. Mm-hmm. Um, so for for example, like homicides. Mm-hmm. So we, we know a lot about homicides. We, but we have pretty good data in the United States on homicides. Hard to hide homicides. Yeah. Like you said, you said earlier how police departments may, <laughs> you know, they may juke their, stat, their stats and they may make a, uh, a burglary, a trespassing, <laughs> um, like a patrol officer, when you, when you respond to a, a burglary, if you make it a burglary, that means you need to write a police report. I don't know about you, but everyone I know doesn't want more work yeah. when they're at work, right? Mm-hmm. So find a reason to, you know, maybe this isn't a burglary, maybe this is a civil matter, maybe this is <laughs> go away, right? There's, there's a benefit for you in, in doing that. Mm-hmm. But that's how to do a homicide. Can't, can't do that with a homicide. Mm-hmm. Can't say, well, this isn't really a homicide. This is, <laughs> this is just a robbery. You know, <laughs> Have you ever seen the movie Hot Fuzz? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I think I did years and years. years and years. There's a running joke in it where uh, the, the one good cop is, uh, is on this uh, trail of all these bodies and all the other police are just talking up all these brutal murders to just being accidents. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> I it sounds familiar. I don't. I don't know, but I definitely. I'll definitely check it out. I yeah. should. I should. I'm supposed to be a police installer. I haven't seen that. <laughs> it's required viewing. I'm sure. Yeah, it, it should be. I think just in general, I think people learn more about law enforcement from that than say I, that and like RoboCop versus any well, of it. <laughs> we learn from fiction as well. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think like when you're learning how to perform your role as a police officer. You're, you're influenced by the fiction that. Oh, I'm you know, sure. Like, like I, I was a McNulty guy. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I love McNulty from the world. Yep. And I'm sure that my, you know, like, you know, I'm the middle, you know, I'm the working class, trying to make it middle class, working class, you know, like, and you take on that sort of masculine performance. Yep. Um, but I definitely, I definitely think that that, that does take place. Um, sorry, sorry so, to uh, sidetrack you with that. No, 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 no. I'm sorry I talked so fast. You cut me off of uh, talking too fast. No worries. We do. Um, so the targeting homicides disappear. You can't make a homicide disappear. So I thought, well, we kind of know how many homicides there are. We have some idea of how many calls for service and proactive contacts and traffic there are. We don't know, like. We can ball. We can ballpark it. Um, so I look to see, you know, like there are about 
you know, 17,000 to 17,500 homicides every year. And I, I looked at what percentage of, of all the calls for service and proactive and reactive contacts, traffic stops, all the times the police contact people, what percentage of those are related to like a homicide investigation? Mm-hmm. And you can imagine microscopic. Yeah. Homicide are very, very rare. Yes. Um, and so like when I was a police officer, I worked in, in an area that was very busy, with a lot of homicides, but being dispatched to respond to their bodies, knowing, okay, I'm going to a homicide, someone got murdered. Those are very rare things to be hearing. Um, it's like point zero zero two something percent of all the these calls for service. So I was thinking if, if the if the type of call or the level of violence that the call the officers are responding to doesn't matter, if it doesn't have any influence over the way if whether or not someone's gonna die during the contact with like a novel hypothesis, you know, like there's no association, mm-hmm. then we should see in the fatal encounters database a similar percentage of those those incidents should be homicide, right? So mm-hmm. if I analyzed 1,700 of those fatal encounters incidents, it should be this really mega point zero zero two. So it's what, like maybe one or two of these all of those incidents should be officers responding to homicide. And what I found was it was 77 percent. 77 of the incidents of the 1,700, which was like almost five percent of all of the incidents mm-hmm. were at least responding to someone having been murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, it's intu- intuitively you think, okay, well, if you're responding to a, a homicide, the person has already taken a life. They're, you know, they may be desperate. Uh, I'm including people who commit suicide when they're contacted by the police. They may want to commit suicide. They may, they have a lot to do. They may want to flee. They may be willing to shoot it out with the police. So it makes sense that it would be elevated. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's something like 180% higher in the fatal encounters data than it is represented in the, the general data. Mm-hmm. Um, that was sort of my big aha moment. And, and then as you look down, if you compare other types of crime, like robberies, stolen vehicles, aggravated assault, these types of things, you see that as the, the severity of the crime increases, you see a higher representation in the fatal encounters data. Mm-hmm. And to me, that signals, you know, there's, there's, there seems to be a pretty strong association between these, between the, 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 the level of violence and the phenomenal examining. Um, and this is, this is back from the literature, but what's, what's exciting, and this is taking a long time to tell you why I'm excited, is because it's 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 very basic. It's descriptive. It's, I'm not trying to, to. I didn't put together. I didn't put together a fancy model. I wanted to just give an example of how we could use this type of a database to ask and answer very simple questions mm-hmm. and put the actionable, you know, usable information to policymakers. Yeah. No, that's that's great. I think that there's there's become this huge disconnect between 
uh, the research side and the, the policy and the practice, the, like the practical side, um, where like I, and I, and I used to be like a, a full, like gung ho, like make your models as complicated as possible and like show off your statistical chops kind of guy. Um, but then once I started working with like people on the ground here, um, I come to realize how I don't want to say useless, but like how it's not the best use of, of everybody's time, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, like kudos to you, man, for, for being able to come up with, uh, and like do all of that, that grind, uh, to, to come to that conclusion. I'm curious, um, you said that as the, the severity of the crime got higher, the likelihood that there was going to be, um, a homicide went, uh, went up as well. How did that, how did that play out with, um, cases involving sexual violence? Was that in the so, pattern or, cause I'm curious, cause you know, like, as you know, like that's not something that's going to be reported right away. So the, the, the numbers on sexual violence were very, very low. Like when I, when I went through the data, it didn't, didn't emerge as a, mm-hmm. as a, as a category in the fatal encounters. Mm-hmm. Like, hmm. so like off on into a, um, a, uh, a call of a sexual assault. Yeah, that was that was not that was not um, something that showed up as a mm-hmm. as a category. But the reason that the reason that was that the category generated was the the most severe crime. Mm-hmm. So I'm sh- it could be that some of those homicides included sexual assault. Yeah. When I think about all that they through. They, I can say with some certainty that they did. Yeah, but I. So, like, if I if I category, if someone, I'm not to downplay sexual assault, but it sure. be something I would blow homicide. Yeah. So if if there was an incident where somebody uh, were uh, if, uh, shot mm-hmm. and then somebody stole their car, I, that would be classified as as a shooting. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get that, and just. I'm just curious. I'm, I ask because, like, like, we know about how how much lower those those types of of incidences are reported, and so I just like it, it paints like an interesting picture. You know, if you think about like the the entire process, if I can get this out in a way that sounds halfway intelligent, um, yeah, like less likely to be to be reported, and so that means that there's less likely to be any kind of like um any kind of case made out of it but then it also means that there's less likely to be a homicide as a result of the not being reported which i'm not trying to say that's a good thing at all but it's just like an it it makes this whole story of of how how we handle sexual violence look that much bleaker to me for some reason i don't know part of the part of this show is like thinking out loud so (laughs) another another reason that this could have could be that it didn't show up in my in my data was that the point at which I, I determined what a call was. So if you think about think about a police encounter with citizens, they're not static events mm-hmm. in a moment in time. Um, so if you think about, there's, there's something that happens before the state is even notified. Let's imagine a, a domestic couple uh, are involved in a, in a verbal altercation and it becomes a, uh, an assault. So there's stuff that happens, then somebody calls the police. And that 911 caller gives information to the dispatcher, and they generate, okay, well, this is the type of call this is. And it'd be a domestic violence call. 
And then the police officer is notified over the radio, and they start responding. While they're responding, the dispatcher may be getting additional information and then relaying it to the officer. So the nature of the call may change while they're in route. It may change from a domestic violence to a man with a gun. Mm-hmm. And then when the officer arrives and they make first contact, then you have this like co-production taking place where now the police officer's involvement is influencing the nature of the event. Mm-hmm. And so the event changed from now to an officer-involved shooting, you know, something completely different. And then you have, after the event, you have investigators come in, they conduct a thorough investigation, and they determine, well, no, this was really this. We thought this was happening, but really we had a warrant for a murder out of California. So the time at which point at the point the time that you choose to categorize code the incident in time as it plays a, a big role so I, I, I what I did was I, I I chose to categorize to, to, to label the event and fix it in time at when the officer first makes contact before they have an opportunity to co-produce them mm-hmm. so that what information would a reasonable officer what would they? What would a reasonable officer have thought they were coming involved in at that at that moment? Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining that if, if a lot of sexual assault investigations don't initially come in as sexual assault, mm-hmm. as a domestic violence, as an assault, as a kidnapping, as you know, family disturbance, you know. So I'm sure that a lot of a lot of sexual assault were in the data, but either the way I categorize them. I just wanted to explain that. Oh, no. Oh, no. It totally makes sense. Yeah. And and again, like, sorry to sidetrack you. Just one of the the benefits of the show is just kind of uh, thinking out loud about stuff. Um, And so I've had had, um, people on from Sam Houston State who do a lot of work on sexual assault case processing in the past. Um, I I can imagine if they're listening to this, (laughs) wanting me to ask you this question um, while I have you here. Um, So... Um, can you talk more about, um, like, now that you've made it to the part that you're really excited about, can you elaborate on that, please? Um, so, so basically, what it does is it, it shows, it shows what, what we can do with, with the data. So, mm-hmm. what, I'm, what I'm hoping is to, to illustrate the utility of this, this database so that we broaden our understanding of what, you know, what police-related deaths are, I think. Well, it's, it's far too narrow, and when you look at the outcome, the, 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 the data that's generated using my data set, it paints a different picture. Um, there are a lot, um, like, for example, like domestic violence is always ranks extremely high whenever anyone has tried to analyze events. But in my, in my data, it shows up still as a, as a high... As a, something that's present quite often, but it doesn't rank quite as high. And, and, and I, I explore in the paper, I explore how these things are defined as well. So, like so, okay. so when, when, you, when you categorize one of these events, um, if the basket is big enough, so if the, if the category is encompass, all-encompassing enough, then obviously there's going to be a ton of domestic violence. So mm-hmm. if I say, well, domestic violence is all of these different types of events. Right. So somebody, you know, assaults their spouse, somebody 
pulled a gun on their spouse, if somebody kidnaps their ex, if somebody, you know, like all of these different, someone murders their their, their wife, um, all of these things are put in the, the, the basket of domestic violence, then that's obviously going to rank very high. And what I, what I, when I went through these data, what I, the point I'm trying to make is, is that we want to make, make these, and it's always, for me, it's always about making it actionable, mm-hmm. actionable, so that it's something that people can actually use in the world to save lives, even if it's just a few, and it's, it's worth it. Yeah. So what, when a police officer is responding to a call service, and they hear domestic violence, everything that, that they hear that, that could be categorized as domestic violence, they're not thinking of it as a necessarily thinking of it as being like, okay, this is a domestic violence. So, for, for example, uh, in previous research, if, if there had been an incident where there was a domestic dispute that was verbal, and then the husband pulled out a gun and held his wife at gunpoint, and the SWAT team showed up and they ended up killing the guy, um, that would be classified as a domestic violence. But if I were a police officer and I were listening to the radio and they said, find the three fifth avenue of Game Bureau, going to be a subject with a gun pointed at his wife holding the hostage. So that's a man with a gun. Mm-hmm. That's what that, that is. So in my in my data, a lot of things that may because I'm saying well, what would be preeminent in the minds of the reasonable and control officers responding to a call for service. Right. They're going to be on that firearm. So in my data, you'll see a lot of a lot of calls that are that I'm classifying as like a subject with a gun, and that may be a domestic domestic violence situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my and as, as far as I'm concerned, the central feature of the call and the most important piece of information in the minds of a patrol officer is going to be that now I'm about to deal with an individual who possesses a firearm. And I think that's a lot more. That's a lot more useful. It's not because it's, if you re-examine the other study, we say, okay, well, we need to be careful about responding to domestic violence calls. What I'm saying is, yes, there are a lot of domestic violence calls in the data and there's all kind of calls. I know myself. I was personally involved in involved shooting domestic violence calls, but it's the fact that someone is armed that is. That is the, the thing that we should be focusing on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the fact that this society is flooded with, you know, with, with guns. That police officers. Maybe that's something we need to focus on. Maybe it's not the nature of the relationship. Maybe it's the fact that firearm involved. Um, would this have happened? Would this same call? Maybe we should be asking: Would this outcome have taken place in Canada, given the mm-hmm. circumstances, Australia? England or any other modern industrialized country. Yeah. So that's that's another thing that's really on the paper. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting because I mean the the thing that stood out to me. I mean, besides, you know, obviously we live in a in a major gun culture, and I think we could probably spend hours <laughs> talking talking through that. Um, but. Like that aside, what what stands out to me is that this seems like I I think people would be really surprised to hear the amount of influence that dispatchers play in this. And if I'm understanding your work, like the the capacity for 
maybe a poorly trained dispatcher um, to really <sighs> send officers into situations that, that may be more dangerous than they realize uh, if they're not communicating as well with whomever is on the other end of the phone. Absolutely. And I, I would frame it, maybe frame it another way because I have dispatcher, dispatcher friends. Yeah. And say that as a, as a police officer, having a, a professional, attentive, passionate, thoughtful dispatcher mm-hmm. who asks good questions yeah. from cop and it listens to them and cares about people that they're serving. I've worked with dispatchers like mm-hmm. that. And uh, and then that those same dispatchers when they're communicating, sometimes they'll be just answering nine one one calls. Sometimes they're they're just doing it on the officer side. But those skills will transfer over, mm-hmm. and they have an ability to know what it is that you need to, know, to take the time to look up additional information to relay it in a concise, clear way. Um, when you have that as a tool, is one of the most valuable things that police officers can have. Like, mm-hmm. So imagine you're responding to a call and you have that as, as available to you. They may, they may provide you with information that makes you stop and say, whoa, we're not going to approach this office. We're going we're to hold back. We're going to get some rifle coverage. We're going to get on the phone and try to call this, this person out because last time, you know, we knew that they had, they wanted to shoot it out with the police now this is a mental health call where they're in crisis mm-hmm. and we don't want to push them, you know, like information and I, as a good, effective uh, quality policing that mm-hmm. serves the public is, I think, in, a, in an industrialized society. I would not, I don't think anyone, when, when someone, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, um, we go to the in the conventions in Vegas, I was like, I heard which was my dad. So <laughs> as a kid, I would watch the next generation and like wish that I could just go on the ship and be on the holiday. Um, but when when I imagine, so I, I spend time thinking about utopia. What what would I like? What what do I want from society? I don't think anybody envisions police. Like no one wants, like no one wants it as a as a function. I don't think it, like it's a sign that we have a problem with society. Uh, use a threat of violence, coercion to, to require people to behave in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And convince them, draw them into, you know, the, the problem. But, you know, I also live in America, and what America is today, we need, we need good, you know, we need good, we need good policing. Mm-hmm. You know, we need, um, we need agencies that are staffed with people that think about things, that understand. They use their social sociological imagination. Yes. And think things through and are, you know, act on good information. And the dispatcher, they're, they're, they're so important. I would argue that they're just as, just as valuable as those by the kind of police that we all want. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like I, I think if you if you made me pick a side, I would I would probably say I'm more of a police abolitionist, to be honest with you. Um, but I also like live in the real world, you know. And I know that if there's 
a car accident outside of my house, I don't want my neighbors being the ones who are, are there tasked with trying to figure out what happened, you know? And so like lots of public safety issues, I think that's what that, that body should serve. Right. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think that a lot of people get into policing because of the public safety aspect of it. I think, I mean, judging from, I mean, just the students I've had over my career, it's been more like, I want to be in, you know, I want to investigate murders and I want to be in car chases and I want to, I want to capture all the bad guys in my community, but there's not really bad guys in your community. There's, there's scared people and there's desperate people, but there's not really that many bad people. Like you're not going to catch Ted Bundy, you know? And I'm with you. Like I, I'm an abolitionist as well. Like I think what that is for me as a society, that that should be the objective to reduce policing, mm-hmm. not just what we, like uh, mental health services, the war on drugs. Yeah, we should slowly, well, as quickly as possible, but we should move move to depolice to depolice as much mm-hmm. as possible. But also, like you said, I mean, we live in the real world, and if, if somebody um, like I investigated uh, robberies for a little while I got did that for a little while we had guys that were you know going into circle K's and taking guns and court spaces and one of the pistol whips uh, a kid at a party and shoots him in the head and they're running around town and we're trying to find people and trust mm-hmm. them and I feel that that's a righteous just, justifiable police function like mm-hmm. Than what needs to happen. So it's 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 a mix. I think it's a mix of the two. But I'm definitely with you. Like um, the the goal, of, like I said, you feel like the objective should be to not have to. There's a sign of a weakness on a yeah. society. Violence. Yeah, and I think too that sometimes that people people think of the police as like maybe not justice but as vengeance and like i think they confuse those two because i've had students like when we talk about this in my criminology classes i've had students tell me that like you know i have i have two small children and my my students are very quick to like throw my kids back at me and so they would say something like um you know dr wilzak if if something happened to one of your daughters you would want the cops out there and you would want you know x y and z done to whoever did it and i'll and i'll tell them like and I'll tell people listening to the podcast now, like, yeah, I would, which is why I shouldn't be the one making that decision, right? Like, my temper should not be, like, satisfying my temper should not be the goal of the government, <laughs> right? Because, of course, I'm going to be furious. Like, what what father wouldn't be, you know, I, I get angry even just, like, thinking about this hypothetical scenario. Like, why, and it would be bad if I wasn't upset. But that shouldn't be the sole uh basis of like this entire branch of government making this decision because I'm I'm never like my, my anger is never gonna be satisfied. You know what I mean? And I and, oh, and, and it just kind of bothers me that there are people out there who like cheer on the police as uh like almost like vigilantes in a way like giving like giving cops the same kind of like superhero status that you would give to like batman or somebody when like batman should be in prison himself but that's a whole other story but you know it just like and like the the flags and and the punisher like and you know what it is it's the punisher stickers that really that's where all this like uh frustration for me generates from 
Like equating yeah. that character with policing is so gross. <laughs> so I gross. And one of the things that I, I worry about more than other things, policing is, so I, was, uh, I was in the Army and got out, I got out of the Army right before September 11th. One of the things that struck me, I went back, I went to university right after. Mm-hmm. And going into a university, being a military veteran, even though it was before the war, I got out. Yeah. And there was this huge split that I discovered civil military divide mm-hmm. that existed in the United States. Yep. Where there's there a very, very small segment of the population that engages in the martial professions. They go to they go to join the military, um, and they do it with motivation the same motivations I had, where I thought, I want to have an opportunity in that. This is what young men my age do if they want to go yep. places and have a decent life. Mm-hmm. Um, I've met the men that I've met in my life that I thought of as being well, like like having had interesting lives. That was what they done in my class, my who, 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 who I had grown up. That was that martial path was a path that was taken. Mm-hmm. And then when you are in social settings where people have not taken that path, they're the way that they perform masculinity, the way they engage with one another, the, the way they see the things, the things they do, they watch, it's, it's different. And yes. there's this huge gap where generations before, elites and highly educated people were compelled to engage in some type of martial mm-hmm. or in the military. There was this connection. And my concern is, is that and this could be because I don't really conceive of policing and military separate institutions. I feel as though there's, they're part of the same institution. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's since since the Patriot Act, definitely. I mean, I would say the 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 marriage probably began like after World War Two. Um, if you're familiar with the history of the LAPD, I think that Bill Parker had a lot to do with it, and Diego Hoover had a lot to do with that. But like a ramp up there with the war on drugs and then uh, the Patriot Act, I think, has really just taken that Parker philosophy of law enforcement being like the actual front line of like American values. Um, and that's really been institutionalized from where I'm I, sitting. I, to- I totally agree to the, the mechanisms and like that's been strengthened and, and, and I, I would take it even further back. I would say from the very beginning that policing, modern policing, was created to maintain an environment that was conducive to commerce. Yeah, yeah. The modern Metropolitan Police Department was designed to manage an industrialization and large populations, maintain a level of order that was required for industrial. And that involved using threat of violence or actual violence to compel people to behave a certain way, and that's what it has been in the mm-hmm. beginning. And then when you compare the war functions, if you compare, um, you know, the 101st Airborne Division, if they're in Baghdad, what are they doing? They're trying to maintain environment commerce. Yeah. So that, you know, it's the same sort of function, and it's the same people. 
So I, when I was a police officer, um, on my squad, there, all the squads that was on, there was always people who were in the reserves in the National Guard, and they were deploying to Afghanistan for a year, policing for two years. Mm-hmm. They were going to Iraq for a year, policing for three years, deploying to, you know, and back. And they were, it was the same people serving a similar function with slightly different operate, you know, uh, rules of engagement and a different beat they're mm-hmm. working. They're still policing. Yeah. Um, my worry is that the same gap that I saw emerging, emerging and widening between the, the military and civilian population in the 2000s following the Gulf or the, the uh, September 11th and September 11th, where these two groups, they couldn't understand each other and it was getting wider and wider. I see the same thing happening in police. Mm-hmm. my policing friends are viewing things in one way. And then my academic friends and my civilian friends they view things in a completely different way. And that I see that gap widening. Mm-hmm. And I think it's bad in and of itself. But the big concern is now what type of people are you going to draw to police? Yeah. It's an outsider group that is, you know, disconnected from mainstream society and viewed as this radical sort of element framed that way. And we're not going to be able to recruit and staff agencies with people that are, you know, using the sociological. Yeah, I mean, there's there's that idea, right? Like, the academy is gonna gonna break you down, and and I teach, you know, I, I would guess maybe half of my my students go into some branch of law enforcement, and I I know, like I, I I probably go, well, they probably think I go way more overboard than I than I actually am, just trying to remind them, like I'm teaching you to be good people because you're not going to have instruction at whatever academy you end up at that's going to really emphasize or or care or encourage about you being a good person. Um, no. And having a heart, you know. Um, and it's interesting, too, like, the uh, the masculinity thing is really interesting because I, I mean, I was never, I don't come from a military family. My, my military career was going to an Air Force recruiter <laughs> and, and not really getting a great vibe from it and my parents not being happy with me for not sending in that application. Um, (laughs) that, but that was, I mean, I was a junior in college on September 11th. Um, and so I, I remember, like, I can remember everything about that day still. Um, and I can remember when the war started, when we invaded. And I just think that people would be fascinated to hear like the, the day-to-day functions of, people who have been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan and like what, what it looks like to be in the military as part of an occupying force, as opposed to like what I imagine a lot of people think about like saving private Ryan or something like that, you know, like all the, all the world war two movies. Um, I think they'd be, they would be stunned. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, like I said, I got out before I got out of the military before September 11th, but my, like former colleagues, police officers, that I, they they really did liken it to a police function. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about, you know, you're not taking kills, you're not. You know, it's, it's about trying to maintain a certain level of order so that yeah, function, so that power yeah. That really, 
It's, it's, been, it's been crazy that this has lasted. Oh, I know. We've been at work for almost 20 years, and no one yep. seems to care or ever talk about it. I know. And it's it's weird, too, from from at least where I work. We have a, an Air Force ROTC detachment. And our there's another university um, in town, like our, our sister school. They have an army um, ROTC detachment. And like I'll tell them, I'll tell the cadets, like, when I was in college, what you guys are doing just as your major, because it's, it's listed as a, as a minor, right? They minor in aeronautical sciences. Like, that wasn't something that was possible, really. Like, where I, and I went to a pretty big school, right? Um, to have to see you guys walking around in your dress uniforms, to see you guys drilling around campus, um, to to see the detachment treated or like market itself as an academic program for students who who don't want to go into the military but still want to like play dress up. I don't know what. <laughs> I don't know why you would do that if you're not like. What's the benefit of that minor? Um, uh, and they'll they'll just look at me like flabbergasted. And I had a student once who was like, he, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant. Um, and he came to me a couple, maybe like a month or two before he graduated. And he was like, you know, I was thinking about it and uh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to find a chaplain wherever I'm deployed to. I was like, why? Like, what's going on? He's like, well, I've just been thinking a lot about like what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> like, like I love him. And if you're listening to this, I love you. <laughs> and I'll tell you that, like, I'll say now what I told him then, you idiot. <laughs> like, why didn't you think about this before? Because before it was all like Boy Scouts and we get to get up early and run. And like, now you're doing this stuff and you got to think about what you're doing. And I don't think a lot of kids in college are really having that conversation. It's just like, a, just like with criminal justice, right? Like, I'm going to be a cop because I want to be in car chases and, uh, I like that Punisher decal on my dad's truck and <laughs> like, it's not, you're not, you're not being thoughtful about what you're getting into. I'm sorry to rant. Oh, no, 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 no. And I, it, this is true for me. I mean, I was like, when I, I joined the army, I was 18 years old. On my 18th birthday, I went down to the, and I did, you know, I signed up. I thought, from my perspective, this is what I, this is my, something I do. You know, I was, my father had been in the Vietnam, and I, I spent a lot of time in my grandparents' house. He had, he had some issues, and I ended up with my grandparents on off. And my grandfather was a World War II veteran, and he took me to the Legion all the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was hanging out with him. Like, when I was really young, there were still World War I veterans, mm-hmm. World War II. And so I was like indoctrinated into this belief that part of being a man was that when I became an adult that I would join the military. Then after that, I don't know, but <laughs> yeah. And what else was like, what else are you going to do? Like if you, like when I went to uh, basic training in Georgia for Benning and, and I was in the room and we all were so different. Mm-hmm. Got Philippines, there's guys from, California, from the East Coast, West Coast, people who lived overseas, people from everywhere, black, white, brown, every, you know, Asian, whatever, you know, and so much, so many differences, but everyone had one thing in common, and you know, everyone was poor. Mm-hmm. Nobody had money. There were no congressmen's sons there. There were no, like, Wall Street executive sons there. 
Yeah. So I didn't. I didn't. I mean, I know other people told me, "Oh, yeah, I need some education." Well, anyway, I didn't meet anyone from Wall Street. Mm-hmm. I didn't talk to them. Mm-hmm. The people I met, worked with, they came. Those those were all poor folks. Um, and so I think that's a huge that's a huge thing. If you look at recruiting the ability of the military to recruit, when they call me bad, it's easy. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, good. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of a lot of people I think just join the military and stay in the military in economic security. Yeah, just like anyone. And the medical care is good. Mm-hmm. They're taking care. Of. People care about you in the military. Like, not they're not always nice to you, but like, you know, you're gonna make, you're gonna get you're gonna get fed. Yep. You're going to have a place The people are going to protect you, one another. You know, like they're going to, I mean, depend, and maybe not, maybe that's for men, maybe more so than women. But um, I can see why it's, I know why it drew me. And I'm still like, uh, I'm completely, I think the words, even before they happened, I was just like, well, this is obviously a terrible one. Like I've never been to I've never been to college, but I'm pretty sure Alexander the Great was unsuccessful in Afghanistan and the British and the Soviet. But I hear these politicians saying how easy it's going to be. It yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, so, like, I'm totally, like, I, I'm definitely there, but I, at the same time, those are my like like my people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I had a. A student, she was, I think, a year older than me, um, and she had done multiple tours of Iraq and Afghanistan in two different branches of the military. So she she enlisted young, um, did her time, uh, got out, came home, tried to reintegrate into society, hated it. Um, she's very introverted, um, and so she signed back up, but she didn't like the branch that she had been in, so she went, I think she went Army to Air Force or Air Force to Army, I forget. Um, but right back in and, uh, right back into the, into the thick of it. Um, and she would be very blunt in class, um, when the stuff would come up. And I remember one day she was telling a story about how, uh, she saw like a delivery of, um, I think it was Escalades, just like the SUVs being like backed off a plane, um, and, uh, American government property, um, and just random people getting into them and driving away. And like seeing like taxpayer dollars just like evaporating, um, and how this was like an open secret that Halliburton was doing all of this stuff over there, um, and my students were just baffled. Like this goes against everything that we've ever been taught about how how war works and how the government works and what you know Bush and Obama and I, I suppose now Trump have said about about it and. And she was like, nope, it's all just a racket. It's all just a con. <laughs> Did I, heard the term spender? No. I don't know how widespread the term was. I, when I was in the Army, I was a, uh, a Carl Gustav gunner. So it was like a it's this big uh, anti-tank gun. And you shoot these 84 millimeter explosives that tank. Yep. Uh, each of these rounds are thousands and thousands of dollars. And there's different weapon systems. There, there can be tens of thousands of dollars each time you fire it. Mm-hmm. But the soldiers need to fire them so that they can learn, I mean, if they're going to be effective war fighting for you get practice firing the weapons. So they, so our battalions would order a certain amount of ammunition every quarter. They would have a 
this is me getting told this as like private. Uh, this is from my perspective as a private. Yep, yep. How I, um, so the they would so they would they, but if you didn't use that practice ammunition at the end of the by the end of your quarter or whatever most period it was, then they would not be able to get to the next. Send back. We would load us all into the back of the truck. We would drive us out to the range. We would load up, take out all the ammo that we had left, all these rockets, and we would fire them all off. I literally have stood on top of a burn before with lot with a raw rocket and my friend down there and trying to cross the streams like Ghostbusters. That's awesome. hurt like hell. And just so, um, just so you know, I I didn't say awesome. I said awful. I don't want you to think that I was like, oh, this is like yeah, America. I'm like no, 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 no. like terrible, was, terrible, terrible. It was awful. It was awful, but it was also awesome. <laughs> it's it like weird, awful. like wish fulfillment. Like every, like like if the army could make that their recruiting <laughs> flyer yeah. somehow, you're, you're yeah, getting to fire an RPG at another RPG. <laughs> They had a video game company come out once and record us firing the different things so that they could put it in this actual sound. Yeah. So back in the early 2000s, if you fire the Carl Gustav on a video game, it would be five Gustav going off. You're famous. Yeah, I'm famous. <laughs> you, should, you should reach out to, yeah, you should reach out to Electronic Arts and try to get some uh, residual money that you're owed for that. They probably made me sign something, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> um, so what's it been like? And this is a very... I'm, I'm, And I apologize if you've been asked this a billion times already. Um, but what's it been like for you in terms of like the culture shock going from the Army and law enforcement into academia, which is has its own problems? Uh, but... I, I mean, I know culturally it's very, very different, but for you, this has mu- this must have been just a, a major challenge. It, it, it has been for sure, and like other than like leaving Cleveland, so like I made the decision that I wanted to leave mm-hmm. long before I actually left. Mm-hmm. And the big thing was like all of the, all of the years that you spend developing as a human being. 
and learning how to behave and learning how to perform and your identity is all wrapped around with profession. Like all of my friends were cops. All of my friends when I did stuff outside of work were cops. When I was home, I was thinking about cases. I loved my like I found I had found something mm-hmm. that I was really, really good at. Mm-hmm. Like I like collecting little bits of information and questioning people and, you know, putting together uh, a good report that builds a case that's suitable for us. Like, I was really, really good at it. Mm-hmm. I was able to use those skills, perform in a way where I, people like, you know, I, I, was, I was doing okay, you know? Like, I felt good about my abilities. I felt good, I was good at it. Giving it up. And, and saying, well, I'm not going to, that's not really my identity anymore, identity anymore. Mm-hmm. It's almost really terrifying. Yeah. Like, I have to, like, become a whole new person. Yep. You know, like, um, so it's still, like, you know, like, wow, this is difficult. Um, and then going into an environment where the rules that I learned over the years, they don't, they're not the same rules. Yeah. So, can't say like you, like you need to phrase things differently. You you can't you can't. This this may sound super negative, but you can't trust that people are all on the same team. Yeah, of, like what to be mm-hmm. like when I was a cop. There were lots of cops I knew that I didn't like. There were lots of cops that didn't like me. Yeah, but we were all cops. Yep, we were on the same team. Yep, so push came to shove. We were brothers and sisters, and I mean, that sounds that sounds like cliche, but it was. I felt mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, felt, I felt that way. I felt as though when I was with an officer, and if I said something, they weren't going to go. You know, I wasn't going to go outside of the office. You know, mm-hmm. like, when when you move into like an academic world, um, it's just the same, the same fraternity, and yeah, none of that exists here. It, and I, I didn't know how important that was. I, mean, I think it's a very natural thing that people yeah. have, in a na- more natural lifestyle would have. Like, <laughs> being a small group of people where, you, where you're the ins- your insiders together, you're the yeah. I feel that intense. Every time I go outside, that's who I am. I'm part of this group. Mm-hmm. I can always depend on that. And then now, I, luckily, I'm the Tillman. I mean, we talked a little earlier with the Tillman Foundation, and that has been like super helpful in providing me with some of that. So, like, with the group of veterans, a lot of veterans, and I'm pre 9 11 veterans, so I feel different than them. <laughs> yeah. It's a really different experience. But they sort of like, like, I'll give you a perfect example, like, every summer, all the people from the Tillman Foundation, so I'll tell you what Tillman Foundation wrote. People who aren't familiar with Pat Tillman, who was played football at Arizona State, and he was played in the NFL, he played the Arizona Cardinals, he was a linebacker, he was a very promising NFL career, big contract. Um, and he quit the NFL, and him and his brother joined the Army, deployed to Afghanistan, and he was not a rah-rah sort of war person who's had major issues with U.S. foreign policy. Um, I don't know, how, I, I don't want to say 100%, but I think he was like trying to make 
making plans to meet with Noam Chomsky, uh, you know, before people died. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was an, you know, a person who thought deeply about things, but also felt like, you know, it's not just some portrait, you know, we're watching some just portraits that go do this, mm-hmm. even if I disagree with it. He was a very complicated person, and he yeah. was killed uh, in Afghanistan, and then the American government used his death as propaganda for the war. Mm-hmm. And I, so his, his wife started a foundation, and they, have, uh, they support common scholars, so they identify veterans and spouses of veterans um, and provide academic scholarships. Like, a good amount of money throughout your undergraduate or graduate mm-hmm. careers. And um, money, the money is great. Like, before I got their money, I was sleeping in my office. Yeah. Lewis, meeting two hours, or three, two hours in and sleep in my office and home. Mm-hmm. Now, all apartments, so, like, the money is great. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's this group, like, you're part of this group of people from all over the country who share a veteran experience, but they also identify with this type of per- this person who was part of the machine, but critical of the machine. Yeah. And there's a credibility that comes with being part of the machine being critical of the machine. You've never been a part of the machine, you can be critical of the machine, but when you're, I shouldn't say that. You, people listen, I think people just, when you've been part of the machine, Right, right. Yeah. No, I understand what you mean. Like, I, I, I think you can make a parallel to academia, right? Like, I can be way more critical of academia than, say, my parents could be, you know, because they, they were never, I mean, my dad went to college, but um, they haven't worked in the field. They haven't worked here, right? So the criticisms I have um, are probably different from what they have, but I, I have more of a right, I guess, more like a, a stronger leg to stand on. You know? Yeah, like uh, there's just some credit. There's just some there's credibility. Credibility, yeah, yes, yeah. That's what I'm looking for. My my supervisor told a story about my my advisor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, my advisor, uh, Dave Klinger, he was telling me a story about how he, uh, he was a uh, young graduate who published his first paper and he got a conference. And, or he said, yeah, I just got his first job. And he was at a conference and. Uh, someone you hear someone say something, uh, and he's talking about his findings, and they're like, "You ever even been in a patrol car?" You know, looking about policing, and he had been, you know, at LAPD, you know, before he was an academic. He didn't even he didn't say anything, mm-hmm. but he knew that that someone was going to tell him, you know, yeah, he was, and that that was going to lend credibility. Yeah, yep. Especially, especially if you're being critical of the Mm-hmm. Anyway, hey, I don't know if the, if the credibility is deserved. I feel as though, but anyway, yeah. When you're with, you're with all these, you're part of this group. It's the shared experience and it's the shared sort of critical lens, and they bring us together once a year, um, several times a year. Lots of, but once for sure, I try to get together in Chicago, like a, they call the leadership summit, and the, the moment that you know. When you think about a whole experience, sometimes you boil it down to a moment. You know, that's sort of exemplifies. And we were getting ready to go down to the waterfront. And there's all of these people from all over the country, different backgrounds, 
and there's a lot of dissenters, there's a lot of critics, there's people who think more right-wing, there's, there's people from all over the spectrum, and it's time to go, we all go outside, and everyone gets on the bus, and as a person gets on the bus, they immediately go to the very back of the bus and sit down and fill the bus in this, like, communal, sort of, like, working together, we all have this shared, sort of, train, like, Mm-hmm. Identical identity, and it yeah. when you're homeless people, when you have those moments where you can like, okay, we're we're the same, we're the same people. We're, you're yep. with your people. Yep, yep. I'm with I'm, I'm Danny, I'm, I feel like an outsider all of them. Mm-hmm. So having that, like, sort of the group of Tillman, Tillman group, mm-hmm. like, once in a while, it's like a little like reprieve from feeling like an outsider. Oh no, it it. Totally makes sense. I uh, I have felt I've spent much of my career feeling pretty alone in academia. Um, I mean, the department I'm in is great. Like I work with some great people, but um, like one of the reasons why I started this show, right, was to like you. I wanted to build a community I wanted to be in, and that it's untenured people was a just a kind of an added bonus because now I I can feel like I'm using my position as somebody with tenure to try to elevate people who are coming after me. Um, I appreciate and now with with the conference too with crimcon like we are we're trying to build something like radically different from what's been established in academia and if it if it works that's great i mean if it if it flames out i'll still have built this community of people uh a new generation of academics who are hopefully more supportive or at least uh less competitive and when we get in positions of power um can hack away at the publisher parish model, which I think has really contributed <laughs> to creating this hyper toxic atmosphere um, in a in a discipline that that has I, I I don't I hesitate to say now more than ever needs us um, and needs us to be kind of uh, allied, but definitely we we need to be working together more, and I I don't think that enough people in the academy see that. So um, I think we're at that time. Crisis, like as a civilization, not just in the United States, but civilization. And I think, like, issues related to criminal justice and how populations are policed is going to be a central indicator of how yeah, we are or are not successfully navigating this kind of transition. I mean, yeah. it's like all of that. It's like it's like Gutenberg just invented the printing press. So like, we have this <laughs> new form of communication. Mm-hmm. It not only changed the way information is disseminated. Population. Yeah. And history is any example. I mean, look at all of the disruption. Reformation and wars mm-hmm. and so you know, all of these things. And yep. we sort of not think that we're in the midst of. Oh, no. We, d- we totally are. I, uh, my, my research lately has turned towards historical criminology. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of reading on the sociology of revolutions, um, which has brought in like bring uh, like different types of political theory. And so I, reading uh, Hannah Arndt's book on revolution, um, she talks about how a revolution is a is a pretty modern concept. Um, modern, I mean, she starts with the American Revolution. I think you can go back to the, the English Civil War, um, but basically, like, it's this modern idea that uh, there has to be something new. <laughs> right that humanity or societies like we're able to look at each other and and look around at what we've created and be like 
this can't be it. <laughs> you know, there has to be something better we can do than this. And we see that generationally. We see that, I mean, sometimes in rapid succession, like with the French Revolution going from, you know, Louis the Sixteenth to Napoleon in a in a very breakneck pace. Um, but but yeah, I think like you're a hundred percent right between the pandemic and uh, climate change alone. Um, I think people are starting to look at each other on top of like, you know, a collapsing economy and, uh, greater awareness of like, uh, wage labor or I'm sorry, uh, wage slaves, um, and are, are really starting to think like, this can't be it. (laughs) Like this, this can't, this cannot be (laughs) the pinnacle of civilization. People who work in this Mm-hmm. 
And they're the ones who, they're basically like a right-wing think tank. Yeah. Legislation and they make every state in the country and they bribe politicians to pass laws. Mm -hmm. Like they had um, SB 1070 in Arizona, the anti-immigration legislation that called that a problem where I work. That was an ALEC product. Mm -hmm. The financial ruin that we were experiencing as a country behind ALEC was right in the middle of helping make that happen. So I got called away from my robbery investigation. It was also part of like the the riot squad, one of the the riot squad. They would like call you in when they needed you for something. Yeah. Yeah. The helmet and the face shield and the gas mask and all of the the riot gear. And they pulled us out to this fancy hotel. There's all these protesters. It's hot. And I'm standing out there all day thinking about should I need to do it for my robbery investigation? I should be doing that. Yeah. People telling me that I'm a pig and that I work for, you know, a corporate and I'm a sellout. And the person next to them telling me they love me, like they're here for me, that they want to make sure I that I'm not, you know, like there's all of the crazy mixed messages. Yeah. Cold and you're hot and angry. Yeah. All people putting me in this, you know, this financial situation. And my boss, and the moment came when my boss says, hey, Baker, you hungry? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm hungry. I'm always hungry. We're going to get your fed in a minute. He's a good boss. Oh, take care of the people who made sure we were getting fed. Yeah. we get you in there and get your fed in a minute. Just stand by. And I looked, and I could see the people from the conference coming out and smoking cigarettes and in their shirts and ties and fancy business suits and the women in their fancy business suits and looking and talking and like looking down at the protesters that behind our barrier. And I imagined in that moment that I was about to have a meal. And I envisioned me going into the net, big fancy hotel at get hold of the spot. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have a nice meal and the hotel's going to be sweet and I'll be awesome. And I thought, that'd be good food going to be good. And finally, my boss said, hey, Baker, you and someone like, I don't know who was, just go down, over there and, get, and go to the door. And I'm like, over there. And you look, and there's like a, a ramp that goes down underneath of the hotel. And so we walk, and we go down the ramp, and open up the door, and there's this long, like, sterile corridor with cement walls. And everyone is, where the cleaning staff is. Always where, you know, back entrance. We walk down and take us into like a like a chow hall with like crappy tables and like a line you go down and you get crappy food. Mm-hmm. And it's like here for the help. And I realized that I was the help. Yeah. Like, I'm the help. That's what I am. I'm help I'm here. I'm not with them. The people there making all the decisions. I'm with all the people down here. All the most everyone was brown. We were in Arizona at a hotel. Yeah. Everyone was either from Mexico or parents or grandparents from Mexico, and I'm the white cop, but I'm the help. We're, we're You're the help. A moment of like cross consciousness. Like, yes. I'm, you know, and I mean, I don't know if that was the moment where it actually happened, but you know, I went home that night and I, you know, drank and thought about it, and, and I think that was sort of like where I realized that it wasn't. Like you had that literal experience. I tell my students, um, I, I try like every trick I can to try to, to get them empowered. 
Um, so you had like a literal experience of the, of the metaphor. Uh, if you're not, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I also want to say too, like, like, uh, so I'm going to be 40 in about two months. Um, and I, I had like major burnout this past academic year. I've had like lots of, uh, tragedies happen during my, my time at this university. Um, I've had friends die. Uh, I broke my back last year. Um, and just like the burnout hit me in a major way this past fall. And I've, I've realized that, uh, institutions can't care about you. And so I, I, I'd say that, and I'm not, I am in no way, shape or form trying to like compare our experiences, but I have to imagine that you, you're, are, are a great police officer and you have had this really terrible traumatic experience of taking a life and then you find out that you might get pink slipped anyway like that has to be such like a a colossal like screw you from this bureaucracy like like you sacrificed everything you have this that you have to live with now and like well but we still might fire you (laughs) it's so it's cruel it just seems cruel you know it felt like it definitely like you had you had you had earned some protection. Yes. The loyalty. Yes. And then you realize that their loyalty is to the people smoking up there on the hill. <laughs> yeah. They don't get paid by the people in the cafeteria. Yep. Yeah. All right, my kids are upstairs stampeding around which is probably a sign that it's time to <laughs> wrap this up uh, thank you so, thank you so much and genuinely thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate your time Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So if you are untenured, and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Tracks or me at HeyDrWill. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody so again please rate and review the show tell your friends tell your people about this and i'll see you next week bye